0: Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast on mental health for folks of color. I'm your host, Zell Anderson, licensed professional counselor. I'm the owner of Panoramic Counseling, where I specialize in treating teens and young adults in Richmond, Virginia, and throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia through online counseling. Let's get into the show. Before we get into the episode, I wanna thank this episode's sponsor, Alitu. Podcasting is a lot of hard work, which is why I'm so glad that I found Alitu. Their user-friendly sound editing software has cut my editing time down to a third, leaving me the space to bring you more content. Shout out to Allegra, Judy, and the rest of their support staff who are always there to help me navigate the various challenges this podcast journey throws my way. To learn more about Alitu, go to the link in this episode's show notes to get started with a free seven-day trial. Using my link also helps to support this podcast. Thank you for joining me for part two of my book review of Hood Feminism by Mickey Kendall. Uh, I hope that everyone listening to this is having a great Labor Day weekend. Uh, I'm trying really hard myself to have that um, work-life balance that I'm constantly talking with my clients about. So rather than you know looking at work emails or doing a bunch of work-related stuff, I'm challenging myself each weekend to unplug. I got a, a separate phone to use for work versus the one that I use for personal use to kind of be able to turn work off. And I share that because when we think of Labor Day, it's a day that we kind of take a break from laboring. Um, but if I look back on my life since I was 14 years old, there has not been a Labor Day that I've taken off completely. So what better time to remind myself and challenge myself to have those boundaries. So I hope that y'all are doing the same and taking time for self-care this weekend. But I am going to jump into the next chapter of this book. Uh, The last episode was a little long, so um, I might focus it down into shorter episodes. Today, I'm talking about the chapter titled, It's Reigning Patriarchy, and like I've said before about this book, Hood Feminism, I really like how it takes a different approach, and when you hear the chapter title, you would think, oh, I kind of know what this is going to be about, but it definitely was surprising to read. Um, you're going to hear some background noises. My dog is scurrying around and the air conditioning just kicked on. So just chilling in my living room right now as I record this. But as I get into some of the quotes that I highlighted, I want to preface this quote by saying that my mind was completely blown um, by these words because they comment on kind of the roots of the erosion of the Black family And you'll understand as I get into reading it, but a lot of people, both in and outside of the Black community, will um, inquire or question why the family dynamic is so fractured. And we look at it in the here and now, but we don't take the bird's eye view. And if you've listened along to this podcast, you've heard several instances where A lot of this is systemic and it's based in the institution of slavery where families were systematically torn apart for generations. So I'm going to get into this quote and kind of let it speak for itself. The toxic elements of black and brown cultures of hyper masculinity are born in part out of the impact of low wages, where the option of a woman not needing to supplement the household income was never on the table where the only response available to overly aggressive law enforcement was protest, but protest rooted in an expectation of potentially lethal consequences. This is a culture where women were largely in charge, not because they had fought to be, but because the men in their lives and communities were being imprisoned or killed with little rhyme or reason. The consequences of white supremacy inside communities of color have been exceptionally harsh, especially since the war on drugs began. Mass incarceration has damaged so many communities, removing many of the more traditional social customs around family from the realm of possibility. For the men who were left, being respected often centered on what was happening inside their homes because there was no chance of it outside. Too often, the role of crime in low-income communities is rendered as laziness or a refusal to take care of a family or otherwise situated in narratives that ignore how much of masculine identity centers on being a provider and a protector. It's difficult to do either when you can't get a job, and yet the pitfalls of resorting to vice are increasingly obvious. If you're absent from your family and community for years because of incarceration, Then, when you do return, you are unlikely to have the skills needed for any kind of healthy progressive relationship. You are even less likely to be able to get a job that lets you support yourself, much less a family. With the removal of so many from the community to serve jail sentences that span decades instead of months, families had to restructure themselves. New standards developed that were less about traditional nuclear families living in isolation and more about intergenerational and interdependent living. Everyone needed to work as inflation rates rose and black wealth did not. New standards ratified the idea that black women working was the norm, but with so many men incarcerated, heterosexual women in particular often felt they had to compete for partners by tightly adhering to the most patriarchal of standards, standards they felt were of utmost importance to the men to offer to work, to take care of all household duties, to be submissive. The list is more than any two women could reasonably be expected to do. Yet, the pick-me culture, a phenomenon where some women announce their willingness to adhere to these arbitrary standards, is evident on Twitter and other social media sites. And it's a direct result of what has come to be a dearth of available options on account of forces dating back to the excision of men from communities of color during and after slavery, end quote. So there's a lot of information there. Um, I have a fellow uh, podcaster friend who will send out a random polling question every week. And the one that was sent this week was along the lines of why in Black families do we see a lot of grandparents raising children, whereas the mothers are focused on their relationship? And it was a very surface-level conversational kind of question. But when I responded, I, of course, thought back to all of the reading that I've been doing. And I said, the answer to this is very complex, but it's rooted in post-traumatic slave syndrome. The tendency to have to make stability out of forces outside of ourselves that are impacting what is perceived as the nuclear family setup. Black families have never really had uh, stability in that regards. During slavery, it was an option to keep the family together unless it was for financial gain to reproduce and to increase the slave owner's wealth. But then following slavery, we had Jim Crow, and then we have, you know, the war on drugs, which has packed the prison system to the gills, and the majority of those people are black men. You know, not a lot of people talk about how mass incarceration is taking an entire demographic out of the communities of color and the fallout. So, you do see a lot of single parents. You do see a lot of grandparents stepping in as the role of a parent. And, you know, a lot of times you'll see those tough kind of choices to be made. I'm not going to say that it's a stereotype that, you know, single parents will choose a relationship over their kids, but um, it's definitely a dynamic that comes up. So, I thought I would share. Um, the context of that that random polling question, because it definitely applies to this here. Um, I'll make sure to send this episode to my my podcasting friend as well. But moving on, the topic of the the chapter is on patriarchy. However, the author does a really great job at tying that vague topic back to some other more specific points that were made earlier in the book. So the first of those is um, there was some intersectionality regarding gun control and patriarchy. And if you want to learn more about intersectionality and gun control, go to episode one of this series. Um, But I'm going to jump into the quote. Tackling hypermasculinity and toxic masculinity is a key part of ending the present crisis of gun violence. But obviously, that isn't the only crisis inside communities of color. It is a clear mistake to focus on only one aspect of the patriarchy without being willing to interrogate the ways that other forms influence the rates of violence and trauma marginalized women and girls in particular are facing. End quote. So I like that the author talks about how patriarchy can be seen as the umbrella system that comes with a lot of different streams of problems. And she links it back to the very specific issue of gun control and how it impacts uh, communities of color. So if you listen to the first episode, this will kind of link for you. But moving on with another example of how the intersectionality ties back in the last episode i talked a lot about respectability politics jumping into this one you'll see how the author tied that previous information in with this chapter on patriarchy so quote for girls of color especially black and latinx girls There's not only the issue of navigating the projected hypersexualization of their bodies and the assumptions that they are somehow destined to fail. There's also the expectation that they perform emotional and social labor at the expense of their own girlhood. Adultification, the racist practice of seeing children of color as significantly older than they are, removes the possibility of innocence from young girls, especially black girls. It shows up in many facets. One of the most bizarre is perhaps the response of white Hunger Games fans to the death of the character Rue, played by Amanda Stenberg, in the movie. Instead of the deep grief that fans reported feeling while reading the book, seeing Rue on screen as a visibly black girl had many commenting that they felt nothing or that her death was less meaningful to them because Rue was being played by a black girl. Some fans of the movie tweeted things like, awkward moment when Rue is some black girl and not the innocent blonde girl you picture. And, why does Rue have to be black? Not gonna lie, kinda ruined the movie. Despite the character being described in the text as having dark brown skin, Even a fictional black girl wasn't immune to racism, end quote. I can respond to that by saying I have been a follower of the Hunger Games series, movies and books. And while I was not privy to these types of comments and conversations being made, it doesn't surprise me. So when we talk about girls of color in particular and how the value of their existence, behaviors and bodies are drastically skewed in comparison to their non-melanated counterparts and male counterparts. It's clear in this example of The Hunger Games that a character that gains sympathy in The Hunger Games, Rue is like a, a sweet little girl from one of the districts, and she befriends the main character, Katniss, And when she dies, it's a very emotional, you can hear my dog Um, shaking. You can see how moving it is, like when you're reading the book. Well, these fans were talking about how, okay, they read the books, they felt really emotional and all of this, but when they saw it on screen and it was played by a black girl, it lost meaning for them and this is significant because it goes to show the devaluation of black bodies you know as the the tweet said like people felt less sympathetic or less uh, moved by the exact same story which is being told in the book and in the movie because they can see the actress is black but also if they were reading the book closely enough they would have seen that Rue is definitely black because it says so in the book, but that's neither here nor there. People really do feel this way, and you can look side by side at a tragedy happening to a black person versus the same tragedy happening to a white person in an area of affluence, and the reaction is very different. So this intersectionality of uh, socioeconomics, race, gender, all of this stuff is really intertwined. So when I share about these things or when people talk about these often neglected aspects of feminism as this book, Hood Feminism, is targeted at because it's trying to fill in the gaps of things that aren't being spoken about, it definitely goes deep. So while we may be talking about racism, it always, it, it branches out into social class and the community that someone lives in. So it gets very complex. But between that and the last one about gun control, I just wanted to, to share some of those links that I noticed. So hopefully I, I articulated that well. Uh, but the author goes on to say, quote, we know that even inside their communities, girls of color aren't always safe. That the patriarchy that positions them as prey can find fertile ground for such messaging everywhere. And then those girls face having their trauma ignored or minimized while the systems that are supposed to protect them sacrifice their safety for respectability. See any conversation about how a girl is ruining someone's life by reporting that they have sexually harassed or assaulted her sports star cop celebrity or teacher it doesn't really matter who the perpetrator is as long as he's preying on girls whose society sees as unworthy of protection there's minimal discussion of the harm he's done to her and the focus is on protecting his potential his future while hers is ignored end quote and that continues on with the many double standards that we're finding in these issues and conversation. When people do seek justice, whose problems are valued as more important? And there's clear discrepancies there. So I'll leave that where it is. The next part that I'm going to share, and hopefully you're staying with me, a lot of different issues have kind of been brought up throughout Mickey Kendall's book, Hood Feminism. I'm going to bring back to mind the theme of respectability politics, which is basically you have to appeal to mainstream society's idea of what is considered respectable and moral in order to matter. And often we can hear my dog clacking across the floor here. Um, Some ambiance for you, but um, with the respectability politics and things like that, the author goes into the topic of code switching, which there, I've done a previous episode on this podcast in season one, if you want to go back and check that out. But I'm going to get into this quote, and you'll kind of see why this is relevant to the the patriarchy uh, theme. So quote, girls in the hood must learn to present only the fraction of themselves deemed accessible, while also working twice as hard to get half as far in life. Media depictions of code switching tend to center on external changes such as altering your speech and changing your hairstyle, makeup, and body language. But the reality is that code switching goes much deeper than that. Girls in the hood have to navigate stressors, bury traumas, and still carve out the space to be human. Their efforts to do so are often pathologized as ghetto or silly by people who are more concerned with respectability than anything else, even if they claim to want to help marginalize girls. When the girls who aren't middle class get colorful hairstyles, seek the pretty consumer goods that are on display, or act in ways that are even the slightest bit outside of proper, they can find themselves on the wrong end of the systems they are still learning to navigate. End quote. And so I'll respond to that by just saying uh, code switching is usually subconscious and it's a way for a marginalized person to adapt or to function in a society that deems them as less than. That's why you'll see people changing their speech or how they dress, or how they wear their hair, because it all goes back to the respectability politics of, well, how am I going to be perceived? We're already at a disadvantage if we're a person of color, or you're already at a disadvantage if you're a female. God forbid you happen to be a woman and a person of color, or add in more intersectionality of being a woman of color and A member of the LGBTQ community, you already have all of those things working against you as far as mainstream respectability is concerned. And so oftentimes the way to survive and to access the resources needed, um, such as employment, opportunities, networking, and basic necessities, you have to code switch in order to survive. And so I like that that issue was brought up here. And so I'm going to conclude with special considerations that uh, Mickey Kendall gave to LGBTQ people and how that relates to the patriarchy, but also just some of these themes that um, I've been talking about here. So, quote, "Uh, my focus on girls is not to the exclusion of LGBTQIA youth who are no more insulated from the harm that comes from toxic masculinity. On the contrary, it greatly contributes to their heightened risk factors and positions, LGBTQIA youth, on the outskirts of the cisgender heteronormative communities they often inhabit. Literally and figuratively, toxic masculinity is killing them. Entitlement, intolerance, homophobia, misogyny, aggression— and sexual violence inside and outside marginalized communities are the antisocial behaviors that patriarchal systems create. There can be no doubt that patriarchal systems have oppressed, terrorized, and abused everyone. As part of working toward a society that will be beneficial for all, marginalized communities need to do more internal work to address these behaviors and work together to undo the harm that has been done. But toxic masculinity isn't just a problem in low-income communities, which are no more homophobic or intolerant or sexually violent than communities with higher socioeconomic standing. There's not a clearly marked boundary between safe and unsafe that can be drawn along color or class lines. We can't sacrifice the futures of girls and fems to preserve the futures of young toxic men or the institutions that made them possible, nor can we pretend that feminism is fracturing our communities. It's the patriarchy. It's always the patriarchy. But the patriarchy has more heads than the hydra and must be tackled from all sides. End quote. To kind of wrap up here, I'll, I will I wanna comment on a couple of things. Uh, in that last quote, uh, it was basically talking about the antisocial behavior. As a therapist, it drives me crazy when people misuse the term antisocial. So in this context here, the author is using it correctly and referring to those behaviors like entitlement, intolerance, homophobia, misogyny, aggression as antisocial behaviors. Antisocial, from a clinical perspective, means without regard for the greater good of society or others. It does not mean you don't like talking to people. It's very misused, the term antisocial, in mainstream media all the time. And unfortunately, that's what people think of. But when we're talking about antisocial in this context, it really means without regard for the well-being of others. And so I just wanted to, to comment on that. But also, this last quote kind of goes into how people will often blame feminism or the women that step forward to report abuses by toxic men who are lifted up and empowered by the patriarchy. People will talk about how a woman reporting something that a sports star or a coach or someone who's seen as a prominent figure, they'll say that she is out to ruin that person's career. And it completely negates the harm that has been done to her. So I like how this quote kind of ties in together all of these issues that are being addressed here. So like the very end. um, And I'll read this part again. But the patriarchy has more heads than the hydra and must be tackled from all sides. And for those who aren't familiar with the hydra, on my iPad, I like held down that button so that I could get like a, a definition. The hydra is a many headed snake whose heads grew again as they were cut off, I like that metaphor because it helps me to conceptualize and to get like an image of this overall topic, right? Like here I am a black man uh discussing feminism from the perspective of a black woman. But even as I, you know, read this book, take highlights, take notes and share pieces of it with you through this podcast, I can see the overlapping and the confusion, right? And just because something doesn't articulate smoothly, or it's not easy to grasp doesn't mean that it's something that isn't worthwhile. A lot of people will avoid going into something that they can't smoothly navigate. And that's not what I'm trying to do here. So that metaphor of a multiple headed snake that it keeps growing back when you when you tackle one of them or chop one of them off, it really is a great picture because even as I shared notes from this one chapter, it really had a bunch of different angles. like. Socioeconomics and race and gender and respectability politics and the values of human life, uh, mass incarceration. Like it, it's very intricate and nuanced. So I'm going to kind of conclude on that, that metaphor of the, the multiple headed snake. So thank you for listening today. And uh, be sure to check back. I'll continue talking about this book in the next few episodes. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support this podcast by buying me a coffee. The link is in this episode's show notes. Thanks in advance.